From the US to Europe, an international podcast breaking down structured credit one tranche at a time. Welcome to the last tranche, Credit Flux's bi-monthly podcast discussing CLOs and all things structured credit. I am your host and reporter with Credit Flux, Hugh Minch. Returning after a truly unprecedented six months, welcome back to the last tranche. I'm pleased to be joined for today's podcast by Adrian Duffy, um, who is from uh, Guggenheim Investments in Dublin. Adrian is head of European Corporate Credit and leads Guggenheim's CLO team in Europe, which was recently announced as the best European boutique CLO manager at Credit Flux's Manager Awards. Uh, Adrian, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me here. Uh, are you still working from home at the moment? I am indeed. Um, you know, I think like everybody else, we, we've been working from home for a number of months now. Um, any initial teething problems we had around getting extra monitors to people in their homes and Bloomberg keyboards have been sorted out long ago. So uh, I think senior management's pretty happy with, you know, how well it has gone in general. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, we've also had the Central Bank of Ireland you know, checking on our business continuity, effectiveness, et cetera. So there's been lots of checks and balances, you know, from investors as well to make sure it's all working. But happy that it has been. Uh, it's even got to the point where we've had um, remote uh, pub quizzes and uh, bingo amongst the investment team. So <laughs> I, <guess we laughs> I like the sound of bingo. Bingo is a new one. I haven't heard of anyone else doing that. Um, I know every country sort of had yeah. their own experience of this crazy period, but if if there are any of our American or non-Irish European listeners might might be unaware, uh, how has the last six months been for people in Ireland in particular? Well, I, I would say, listen, that, that you know we were fortunate at the time of the outbreak that our equivalent of prime minister, uh, you know, is, is a doctor. Um, I think people have been very compliant in the rules. You know, we've we've obviously had uh, some debts about a little over uh, 1,700, which isn't too bad versus the population of about 5 million. So people have been very compliant. There's been a phased, uh, you know, I guess, removal of the lockdown restrictions and increased interaction. But we're doing what we're being asked to do, I guess. And, and, and um, I think that that's, that's been working. So... Uh, obviously, cases can spike, et cetera, but uh, generally, generally, it's been been high level of compliance. And um, what about on a on a personal level? I know that as I'd say about half the people I speak to are uh, finding that they're they're loving um, working from home all the time, and the other fifty percent are, are losing the plot somewhat. Uh, where do you fall in that between that dichotomy? Uh, somewhere in between, I'm fortunate enough that I can go into the office if need be. So with little traffic, I've actually been cycling in occasionally just to, to break up the routine from waking, working from home. I think it'll be a different kettle of fish if, if uh, you know, kids are, are not back at school in September. But, uh, you know, you've got to make the best of a bad lot here and try and do what you can. So... I can understand why some people experience a level of frustration with it. And, and working from home is not for everybody. We have, you know, some people who have, you know, returned to, to Germany or to Italy to work from home because they're, you know, living in an apartment in, in Dublin that's shared and, and, and uh, you know, having to share a living room or spending all that time in your bedroom is not conducive to your mental health. So we've we've helped facilitate people move to wherever they've needed to, to, to make sure that they can be productive and stay sane, I guess. And um, uh, what about in terms of managing a loan portfolio from home? Are there are there some particular challenges that um, 
you found and maybe how do you feel that um, Guggenheim's adapted to that challenge? Uh, everything's been 100% uh, in terms of operations, uh, access to the team, etc. We we have our our morning calls and then the rest of the day is scheduled with, with Skype calls to make sure we're going through portfolio reviews, etc. I think there's you know there's a lot of phone calls. I guess would be with the short answer above and beyond stuff that gets scheduled. Um, but I, I don't think we've had any issues whatsoever. I mean, there's clearly been you know uh, a lot of interaction with our regulator. Um, there's been a lot of interaction with investors. Um, you know, clearly there's been a lot of portfolio activity, and that has all gone on as normal, um, thankfully. Uh, so everything has worked from a systems perspective and. Uh, you know, people have adapted to it in terms of being able to share uh, screens on Skype calls and, and, you know, being relatively innovative around what we can do to make sure that the information is being shared. But, you know, as I think to somebody, you know, uh, being on the floor and being able to interact, I think it just has made, you know, made us be a little bit more organized around scheduling calls and making sure there are windows to get things done. Uh, but we've had no issue from an operational perspective. And, Senior management in the U.S. has been pretty focused on our overall level of, of uh, accountability, responsibility uh, as regards our fiduciary responsibilities, et cetera. So that that's all been, you know, checked and and, and uh, uh, all working as it should. Let's talk a little bit about your platform. So Guggenheim's been an issue of CLOs from before 2008. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your your history as a as a CLO manager? Yeah, I think the the Initial three principles of the credit business and, and Guggenheim Partners, you know, came across from another firm in in, in 2001. Uh, actually, we had come across to solve a number of problems for a number of uh, late uh, 1990s CBOs with the underlying was dollar high yields. Um, you know, I, I set up the business as one of those principles in New York as part a part of out of the money uh, AAA tranches basically at the request of various managers and a number of funds that um, have, have now obviously been redeemed the likes of being a magma fourth word to Adam Street Stellar etc so we, we cut our teeth on um, you know be dealing with problem um, problem assets in, in, in structures that were already set up uh, that allowed us, frankly, to you know turn one of those into a long-only vehicle and, and 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 get into some other businesses. But it was August 2002 before we did our first broadly syndicated, or sorry, first middle market transaction, which was called 1888. Um, over time, we've been a repeat issuer. Um, you know, we've placed 24 deals in total, uh, five in Europe, four 2.0 European transactions. So, CLOs are are part of the platform. But they're, you know, they're they're not all of the platform. Needless to say, you know, when we started the business in, in 2001, we were very keen to diversify our income sources across different products. Um, so, you know, we manage capital. Uh, you know, separate managed accounts are on our separate managed accounts are our largest in the European context, and then, you know, we manage money for uh, ops, some direct activity, some quiffs, and and the CLOs as well. So. Broad mix, which you know, I think is, is something that we're we're pretty happy about. Um, and of course, you've just been awarded the best European boutique manager award. Do you think that's something that you do differently from your competitors in the market? Or what, what's your what's your unique approach? 
Well, we like to think that we focus very much on on fundamentals. Um, when we say fundamentals, we look really at what we perceive to be the uh, after-tax-free co- cash flow profile of businesses that we think deserve to exist. We spend a lot of time uh, agonizing on, on that latter point in terms of of uh, you know which businesses really have you know uh, moats around them insofar as they really can. And uh, you know the after-tax free cash flows really when we look at adjusting, you know the EBDA numbers, you know for all the uh, fuzzy items that we see in today's world, everything from capitalized R and D to IFRS 16 to you know making sure we have a full and clear idea in terms of what the the working capital requirements of these businesses are going to look like, you know what all the cash drains are in terms of capex, interest any dividends, et cetera, to see what that after-tax free cash flow number really looks like and what percentage of debt that really represents. You know, we spend a lot of time agonizing as well over uh, the enterprise value. So it's very much an enterprise value-driven analysis. We look at public comps. We look at um, where the private transactions are getting done. Um, we spend a lot of time looking at, you know, obviously where restructured transactions were done or where trough enterprise values were after the great financial crisis. So we, we view the, the debt attachment point as really being a derivative of that enterprise value. And, and, and you know, we, we, we take a measured approach in terms of what loan to value we will go to. You know, we, we break down these businesses and build them up. Um, you know, we project out the numbers quarterly uh, for two years. We have a very large, you know, investment kind of memo that, that goes to investment committee. It's an iterative process. Committee is unanimous. So I think all of this is really set up for us to try and avoid making mistakes at time zero. Um, so we have a very high decline rate. We're, you know, we're invested in about 25% of the European leverage loan index, which is, which is relatively low. We view our job as not to make a mistake at time zero because we don't bet on the liquidity that the market may or may not have at the time there may be a problem. I think the, the, the second main kind of thing that probably, you know, we think uh, is important in terms of differentiating us maybe from other folks is we're very active mo- monitoring, uh, you know, when numbers are reported monthly. You know, we go to those, uh, I, I get an email immediately, you know, we're looking at what the expectation is in terms of every line item versus budget or projection, sponsor case, et cetera, through EBITDA, down through free cash flow, looking at the liquidity, et cetera, uh, in, in each and every case. So, and, and really making sure that the, the, you know, there may or may not be MDNA with that. We're making sure that the numbers are consistent with the narrative. Um, uh, and that we believe it. And if that's not the case, then we will, you know, bring something back into investment committee and have another discussion about it, figure out, you know, if we need to talk to management or what else needs to happen, whether we want to stay in the position or not. But that very active monitoring enables us to see things maybe a little earlier uh, than maybe some other people will do. You know, we get to act on that if we need to. So all of that kind of has been, you know, I'd say, the two main areas that really have helped in addition to having high quality investment professionals and set up on industry team basis. We have four industry teams, 16 investment professionals. So all of that focus and, 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 and working very hard on this has, has led us to outperform the index by about 243 basis points per annum since inception, which is a big number. 
we're, we're seeking to avoid defaults. Last nine years, we haven't had any defaults, and uh, our, our, our default as a percentage of our AUM is, is you know, zero point one percent. So, you know, th- th- this approach has worked, and it has been tried and tested. I guess is the point. Um, but we're we're uh, uh, maybe I, I think a little more like. Uh, uh, um, you know, real fundamentalists in terms of how we approach that credit and how diligent we are about what the what the performance is like. Yeah, um, let's talk about um, the market in 2020 and especially in March because I think it's fair to say that was one of the most unpredictable months this market has ever faced. Um, was there a particular moment where you realised, sort of, okay, um, this is going to be big? There's a there's a sell off on its way. Um, was that was there something you remember you recall from that time that triggered that thought? Well, I, I think it was completely unknown what the effects were going to be. Uh, but our viewpoint was that you know for a lot of businesses, revenues were going to fall off a cliff, uh, and we didn't know how long this was going to go on for. So we immediately did what we did in the great financial crisis, effectively, which is we rescrubbed the entire portfolio. Uh, we had conversations amongst ourselves about what was the best approach to look at these businesses because traditional recessions take time. They might be, you know, you know, they're not step functions in terms massive step functions in terms of, you know, how quickly revenue might disappear for some of these businesses. So we knew that some businesses were going to be more susceptible than others. You know, clearly, you know, travel, leisure, uh, energy, retail, all of that was was going to be uh, really in the crosshairs. Uh, and going to be a serious problem. Um, clearly, the likes of you know supermarket exposure, food businesses, healthcare, et cetera, are going to be more defensive. So we we basically re-underwrote every every name in the portfolio of which we kind of cover about 190 names. You know, we've a lot of resources with with 16 investment professionals to kind of get through all of that. Um, so we basically looked at each business and ranked them on a revenue impact assessment. You know, on a scale of one to five on a cost flex ranking of, of one to five, you know, on a liquidity slash equity support ranking of one to five and a, a current loan to value ranking of, of one to five using more like trough yeah, enterprise values. So each business, you know, uh, whether it was a loan or a bond was, was, was assessed from that perspective. And, and given an overall ranking of one to five, you know, five being best, you know, or, or sorry, five being the worst and, and one being the best. And then we looked at the entire portfolio and how, how that shook out on those scores as well and, and moved things up onto our watch list uh, on the basis of, of what their, their scores were. Um, so obviously there was, there was, a, there was a lot of, of, of us not being in the position to know how long this will go on for, but, you know, our biggest concern was for those businesses that were most susceptible, you know, really having no revenue generating opportunity, you know, uh, clearly being EBITDA negative, you know, what their liquidity position was most likely going to look like, you know. So we saw negative returns, clearly 13.5% in March, and, and we acted very quickly then on the names that we thought we had the most exposure to that um, we thought, you know, uh, um, we could really be impaired in, in liquidity situations on. Um, so we sold out of names like, you know, Swiss Port, Scenic, Parkes Reunites, uh, where we did have exposure um, relatively early on. And, uh, 
you know, in some cases we were, you know, the the, the, the stress bid was there, and uh, for all of those names, and, and was was pretty strong, uh, you know, and you were able to trade these names in the in the seventies and eighties versus where where they were initially, you know, marked down in the fifties when this started to happen. So we were really really busy for kind of two months getting all this scrubbing done, if you want to put it that way, all this force ranking and and taking all these things through investment committee. So, you know, um, and that was a real test of, of how well we were set up and working from home and, and, and just how the, the business was set up. So we were, you know, working as hard as we could to try and, and make sure that uh, that we managed the portfolios, not knowing how long this would go on, but knowing that it was going to be a severe problem and had the capacity to be much worse than the great financial crisis. Mm. Uh, we thought the central banks would definitely take action. You know, the quantum and scale of that action obviously has has turned out to be fairly monumental and unprecedented. So, um, but we didn't want to necessarily bet uh, wholeheartedly that that was going to be the case. I mean, you know, in, in instances like this, there, you know, you have to be able to differentiate between what the credit spread is and what the credit quality looks like. <laughs> Uh, and that we thought was really where we wanted to focus and, and figure out what what's going to survive here and what's not. Yeah. On your scale, were there any maybe individual credits or particular sectors that surprised you? I mean, anecdotally, I've heard that people have cancelled their summer holidays and, and they're buying cars instead, for example. Was there anything that's, that you maybe underestimated at the start or otherwise well, I would say in general, we hit these businesses pretty hard. And as they've reported numbers, I would say that on aggregate, uh, guys have reported numbers slightly better than we would have anticipated. So that that has been a little bit of a surprise for us. There have been pockets of strength. And it, it really depends because, you know, we're talking about a pan-European market. So, you know, once you get into these things, you know, you you... you you can see lots of different trends in each jurisdiction because each jurisdiction is behaving differently in terms of, you know, the scale of what the government is doing from a fiscal perspective, you know, what sort of plans they're they're doing for furloughing workers and paying for those, what are the loan guarantee programs, et cetera, they're putting in place, you know, how they're responding to the, you know, to the virus in general, how long the lockdown is, et cetera. So, you know, we were... You know, clearly, you know, not a lot of loans get issued out of Italy. Italy, in the first instance, this is a more, it's more a, a high yield product that kind of comes from Italian issuers. So you didn't have, you know, we did look at what businesses were going to have Italian exposure as being the first ones, and then it was real focus on the travel, leisure, et cetera. But you know, we we generally don't like automotive anyway, so we didn't have something to do there. So I think it it, it really depended on 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 where we were, but we took up the percentage of, of names on our watch list to 17%, and those names were, were getting, you know, a lot more scrutiny than as a result of them being on our watch list. Mm. Um, so, you know, we're very, very, and then as, as each one is, is reporting numbers, you know, we go through them the next day in an investment committee setting and, and making sure that, that what we what we thought was going to make sense or not. But there was a lot of debating going around about what the liquidity requirements could be for the businesses that were most exposed you know, and, 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 you know, we were pretty fearful about the scale of what that liquidity requirement could be for some businesses. If the virus, you know, impact was, went on for longer than anticipated. So, for instance, the, like, the likes of Swissport or, or the likes of Scenic Cruises, um, you know, and, 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 you know, our viewpoint there was, you know, um, 
we don't want to make a bet where, you know, uh, the liquidity requirement ends up being larger than we anticipate and therefore we're being deeply subordinated and our recovery is really going to be ugly uh, with that new money effectively priming old money when there's a new cash requirement and lenders not being in the position to provide that capital or the sponsor not being in the position to provide that capital. So there's a lot of things you have to think about in conjunction with, you know, what that new money requirement would be. But I think probably not the biggest surprise, but something that has helped the market in addition to the central bank accommodation, negative rates, et cetera, and all the fiscal stimulus has clearly been that the dry powder sitting on the sidelines of distressed capital that quickly came into the market and frankly bid up a lot of these names you know, to, to the point that they're uh, in the 70s and 80s, whereas they would have been in the 50s with no new news on any of those businesses and, and no new visibility in terms of what the outlooks remain for those businesses. So that, that I think, was interesting. Yeah. Where would, you, where would you describe the state of play now? I mean, in, in general terms, where, where are we in the recovery or is it too soon to call it a recovery? Are we, are we still at the stage where we're um, looking to see what, what's next going forward? Well, I think you've had a recovery, frankly, in terms of the performance of the asset class. I mean, you had a massive return in April and leverage loans, you know, 6.66%, May and June, you know, kind of started to taper off 3.28, 1.57. We're still negative year to date, 3.8% to, to, to the end of June. Um, but, you know, I, I think the uh, there's a lot of things to consider here. I mean, you know, the old expression, don't fight the Fed, clearly applies in the European context too, that the ECB has become the market, um, you know, the market has been clearly more technically driven than fundamentally driven. There's been, you know, fairly massive price recovery. Um, you know, we are having increasing defaults. Defaults have gone from what about 2.8 percent in the European perspective, projected to be uh, a little over six percent through the end of the first and second quarters next year. Um, we've had um, a massive number of of downgrades, over 200 from S and P, for instance. You know. Um, so there's there's a lot of things that are happening uh, in the market, uh, and you know I think the businesses you know that have have that have the right profile, um, you know, are in a good position. Clearly, you know the likes of of you know if you want to take the extreme examples of Carnival or Norwegian, the capital markets have been open for them. The same is true of European credit. So capital has been there even for those distressed businesses. So, you know, you really have a situation here where, you know, um, you know, the shakeout hasn't really happened that much. Um, and, and, and in that case, we still, you know, view it as the type of market where you need to be very, very vigilant uh, in terms of, you know, how, how, you're, how you're approaching risk because of that breakage between, you know, where credit spreads are and what, where credit quality is. I mean, businesses are more levered uh, and, and, and I think this type of market, you know, really has a ways to go, uh, particularly really fundamentally from the perspective of, you know, it looks good for credit in the near term uh, in, in terms of, of because of all this monetary accommodation and our CIO is positive on credit spreads in general because of that point, but you have to be very selective and he is very selective about where he sees those pockets of opportunity. And, and, and you know, our view with all of that, some of which, you know, sounds like it's mixed messaging, but really isn't, is like, listen, central banks have 
provided the liquidity, you know, to the markets, you know, uh, uh, the markets have provided liquidity in some instances to the cred to credit to stay solvent. Uh, and we will have to wait and see where, where this thing shakes out because uh, the fundamentals in terms of where the performance are for most businesses and where GDP and growth outlooks are, are clearly lower. So, you know, um, while we've had a price recovery in the assets, et cetera, you know, the fundamental outlook on the individual businesses is, is, is less clear and the default outlook is higher. So it's, it's matching all of that is proving to be, you know, the, the art in, in, in this equation. Um, I think this type of market really will suit who the better credit pickers are through a cycle um, because that, that, that's really when the rubber meets the road here. Yeah, I mean, you spoke. You spoke to the default outlook. You spoke to also the um, the unprecedented rate of triple C downgrades. Um, how concerned should investors be about that tail risk um, that the pandemic has obviously put on existing CLO portfolios? Well, I, I think they are. I mean, you have, you know, if you look at the CLO liability stack, the price recovery in the junior parts of the capital stack has not has not been there. I mean, like. Equity is down anywhere from 45 to 25 percent. You know that's fairly massive. And clearly, as you go up the stack, um, the impact. You know, if there is a single B in the cash stack or is a double B, uh, clearly that triple C migration. Um, you know, increased default outlook. You know, creates issues around triggers and creates issues around how you project what the cash flow is going to look like to those bottom tranches. So they have not recovered in price, really, relative to the movement in not recovered as much as, say, you know, AAA spreads have tightened. Um, so I think our challenge from a CLO market perspective is who wants to write a check for the equity or for the MES? Um, and, and that, I think, is still relatively unknown. Um, you know, the, the equity bid in the European context, I, don't, I wouldn't classify as deep. Um, and I think lots of investors will be grappling about some of the things we've been talking about uh, you know, in terms of how that impacts, you know, the structure, um, you know, you know and, and, you know, you're, you're seeing different commentary about the European market considered being in better shape than the, than the U.S. market, both from a default outlook and from a structural CLO outlook in terms of the you know, quantum of, of, of uh, power subordination that European transactions have. And, for instance, you know, European double Bs have an OC pushing up to three times that of, of, of dollar CLO. So, I mean, there's a lot, a lot to figure out there again, but, um, you know, I, I think the, the, the reality is right now, you know, we're not seeing a flight of capital into your CLO equity mes uh, type of tranches that will, uh, that is commensurate with maybe the price action that you've seen on the loan side. Yeah, and one other thing that I'm hearing, which is obviously connected to the lack of demand for equity, is that there's some concern about a lack of new CLO warehouses being opened up, particularly in Europe. Uh, what's your forecast for issuance in the latter half of the year? And if there's a dearth, dearth of new issuance, um, is that, uh, could that be a positive trend for the market in your view? What needs to change before issuing CLOs makes sense again? Big question. I, I really wouldn't like to try and put a number on what it's going to be, but from my conversations with uh, a couple of arrangers, you know, I think you know some of them are grappling with being able to open new warehouses themselves. So the risk appetite within the investment bank in terms of you know uh, 
under what terms they would like to do a transaction and what sort of term changes are really going to come with them reopening their lines to managers. I mean, the arbitrage clearly doesn't work. Loan prices have rallied more than they probably should have. Uh, so it, it's difficult for a manager to kind of really put up their hand and say, yeah, all the risks that we think, you know, we could be facing have diminished to the point that this looks like a risk on trade. So at the moment, we, we as a firm are, are just, you know, we're, we're, we're keeping an eye on us, but, um, you know, we don't really have that visibility. And as a manager, you know, when, when you know, you're on the hook for risk retention here and, you know, you need to be equity in a warehouse or, or, or seek third-party equity in a warehouse if you don't have an originator vehicle, there are quite a few impediments, you know, that are driven by where the existing cap stack is from a liability perspective that make it, I think, more difficult than it has been to open new warehouses. And, and also the other thing is, you know, the, the visibility, you know, the, the, the index pricing in terms of where it is in a European context is not really uh, indicative of where the offer is where you can ramp a portfolio at. So while the index says it's a little over 93 in terms of dollar price, the reality is you would be ramping assets in a much higher price context. So the other thing is we have no calendar really now that's material. Um, you know, we're coming into August, you know, it's, 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 it's basically the forward calendar is a little over a billion really. So it, that, that's not a large number in the context of a market that's over 300 billion. And, you know, conversations that we've had with cap markets desks are their expectation is that there will be some larger transactions coming in September, but they're all trying to price transactions before the November U.S. elections. So your window then in terms of, of a forward calendar is also questionable when it comes to needing, uh, you know, more diversity and better quality credits to come to market to, uh, to, to, to help ramp aside from, from secondary. So that's, that's just another challenge that you have. So pretty challenging outlook, I think, is a short version. Yeah, challenging outlook indeed. Um, just to wrap things up, if there's one thing that you have to be uh, cautiously optimistic about in the market, uh, what is it? Cautiously optimistic about? Um, I think because of the central bank action, I think a lot of sectors, I think the default, the default outlook is, is, is maybe more, you know, in a European context is, is something that you can be cautiously, cautiously optimistic about. The U.S. is looking at defaults of, of over 12% in the first quarter next year. In the European context, it's 6.6%. I, I think, you know, the, the, the carnage really, I think, in the real economy is going to be in the much smaller and medium-sized enterprises that are, are not getting the level of financial assistance, don't have access to capital the way businesses that we typically invest in would. I think that, that's where the, the bigger drag in the economy is frankly going to be. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Hugh. Appreciate the time as well. Thank you for listening to The Last Tranche. If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Credit Flux and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share our content.